also wish to listen to my subscriber-only episodes. These can be accessed either via Patreon at the Tudor Chess Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash the Tudor Chest, or via Apple Podcast subscriptions. For as little as £3.99 a month, you can get access to all content released by the Tudor Chest. Catherine Parr was the last of the six wives of King Henry VIII, and as such, her story is sometimes seen as something of an afterthought. Consigned to history as the nursemaid of Henry VIII, this grossly undercuts a fascinating woman who achieved a great deal in her time and helped to transform both the role of women in England at the time, but ever since. Catherine Parr is also the subject of an upcoming film, Firebrand, starring Academy Award winner Alicia Vikander in the role of Catherine opposite Jude Law as King Henry VIII. Based on the book The Queen's Gambit by Elizabeth Fremantle, the film will chart the story of Catherine's time as Queen and how she balanced her role as the Queen of England against her own burgeoning desire for major religious reform. To discuss all of this with me, I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Elizabeth Norton onto the podcast. Elizabeth is a historian, broadcaster and author of several books, including one about today's subject. Her book, Catherine Parr, Wife, Widow, Mother, Survivor, was released in 2010. And more recently, Elizabeth served as the historical consultant on the film Firebrand. And so in addition to a discussion about Queen Catherine Parr herself, we will also discuss this exciting new film and what audiences can expect to see. Welcome back to the Tudor Chess Podcast, episode 17. Queen Catherine Parr with Dr. Elizabeth Norton. So firstly, welcome to the Tudor Chess Podcast, Dr. Elizabeth Norton. Very excited to have you come on. If you wouldn't mind, could you provide us with a quick introduction into your background, where you grew up and what you do full time? Although I think most people should know that already. Mm -hmm. Hello. Yes. So I am Dr. Elizabeth Norton. Um, I'm British. You can probably tell from my accent. I come from the south coast in Sussex, a place called Stenning, where King Ethelwolf, a Saxon king, was first buried, although he's not anymore. I write primarily about women and the Tudor period, the Queens of England. My most recent book was The Lives of Tudor Women, although I'm currently working on an academic biography of Jane Seymour. And that's where you still live now? No, no. I live in Esher um, in Surrey. Oh, do now. you? Yeah. Oh, near okay. I know, and I know it well. I grew up in Epsom, so oh, okay, yeah, really yeah. close, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I now I'm in Sutton, so uh, yeah, down the road. What sparked your passion for for history? You've written so many books, and they have spanned the Norman Plantagenet and the Tudor queens. Can you recall something that really sparked that interest? Yeah, so I was always really interested in history. Um, you know, I was one of those really geeky kids who could kind of reel off, you know, the the names and the reigns of all the kings and queens. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to like visiting places. I remember when I was really young, probably about eight or so, I was given a pack of cards that had all the kings and queens on, and after that, I was just hooked. But I've always been really into history. Um, it's fascinating to think about people who came before you, what they were doing, what their lives were like, and I particularly like learning about what the lives of people are like, because of course, the people of the past are exactly the same as us. You know, if you if you put a baby from now back 
sort of a thousand years ago, it would be exactly the same. You couldn't tell us a single difference. And I think that's really interesting to see how people do things differently. With that in mind, if you could go back to a single moment, let's say you've got a, a time machine, you can go back and see a single moment from history play out. What would you choose? See, this is such a difficult question because there are so <laughs> many. Um, I once read a quote from someone who said that the Titanic sank because there were so many time machines on it at the exact moment of, you know, it hit the iceberg and the extra weight. It's, you know, it's kind of, there are so many interesting points in history. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I'd like to go and see Elizabeth I. Um, and I'm not too bothered about the moment. I'd just like to kind of meet her, see what she's like, what she's really like, because she's such a powerful woman. Um, and there aren't that many such vibrant female figures in the past. You know, women often had something of a hard time. They have disfavorable inheritance rights in the past. So to actually make such a success as a reigning queen um, is just fascinating. So perhaps I'd go back to the moment of her accession in Hatfield Park, where she learns that she's now Queen of England. So you'd go back to that moment under the tree? I think so, where she sort of, you know, declares that this is the Lord's doing and it's wondrous in our eyes. I'm paraphrasing there. But that moment, I think, would be really fascinating. And of course, I mean, it's November. She can't really have gone out to read in the park. You know, she's clearly staged this scene um, (laughs) because nobody goes and reads in in the park in Hatfield in November. It's cold. Um, So it's clearly a staged scene. She wants the world to remember her doing this. And I think that's really fascinating. Do you have a controversial Tudor opinion? Oh, yeah, um, I do. Um, I think one place that I really think I'm at odds with a lot of people is I actually don't think that Henry VIII is that bad a monarch. And I get shouted. I actually did a radio debate um, a few months ago, actually, um, against Kate Williams, who was arguing for Henry VIII being the worst British monarch. And I was arguing against. And I agree. I agreed. I mean, normally with a debate, you just get given a side and you go with it. But I agree that he's not the worst monarch. And I think to some extent that's surprisingly controversial. Um, He's a bad person. You know, I think we can safely say Henry VIII is not a nice man. Um, but as a monarch, he's he's all right. He does some bad things, but he's the father of the English Navy, rightly or wrongly, really. You know, the dissolution of monasteries is very, very brutal, but it does help to bring wealth back into secular hands, which I think is probably good for the country in the long term. So I think really I would argue that to some extent, Henry VIII is a bit misunderstood as a ruler, and I know that's quite controversial. He's not mm. my favourite monarch, but he's definitely not the worst by any means. So I suppose yeah, I might already know then what your answer to the next question is, but is there a Tudor misconception that you would love to change? I mean, it, would it be rewriting Henry VIII's perception, or is there something more? Is there something that irritates you even more that you would love to change? Okay, there are kind of two, and they're both related to religion. Um, oh. Henry VIII was not a Protestant, and he was not attempting to achieve a Protestant church. I think he would have been a bit horrified about what happened to his church after his death. And on the same lines, Anne of Cleves was also not a Protestant. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've said that, and nobody yeah. ever listened. She wasn't. Um, Cleves was a Catholic state. Um, obviously, it's in the Holy Roman Empire. Um, it's, one of, it's a sort of semi-independent duchy, but it remains Catholic. Um, and in fact, continues to be Catholic. She is the Schmalkaldic League, which is a Protestant defensive league. She is their candidate for Henry's um, wife, but she is not a Catholic. She is not a Protestant. See, I mean, even I'm doing it. And she's (laughs) not a Protestant herself. And there is no evidence at all that she ever becomes a Protestant. She is a Catholic. Yeah, and I think particularly with Henry VIII, that's also, he died a Catholic. He, He never 
and I, we, I think we can also say Anne Boleyn wasn't a Protestant yeah, in, in the same in the same vein. And with Anne of Cleves, I think I think it was something Gareth Russell wrote that she just happened to come from somewhere that had fallen out with the Pope. But it yeah. wasn't that that's kind of where it ended. Really. Absolutely. Yeah. Cleves is not Protestant I and mean, her mother is devoutly Catholic. Um, yeah. And it's simply because she's German, I think, that this idea that she's a Lutheran has has come up. But mm. she isn't. There you go. Well, now you know, folks. <laughs> so to get on to the the sort of the main story of, of this week's episode, we're going to be discussing Catherine Parr, the sixth and final wife of King Henry VIII. And then also we're going to be having a bit of a discussion about the upcoming film Firebrand, which I'm really, really excited about. And you had a, a part in, in the making of that as the historical consultant. To start with the woman herself, can you, you know, Catherine Parr is a name that anyone who loves Tudor history will know, but she is one of the I suppose, lesser explored of the six wives of Henry VIII. I think we tend to, a lot of people tend to divide the wives of Henry VIII into their two natural halves. We tend to focus on the first three and then the latter three as two sort of separate entities with the first three getting more screen time, more discussion. With that in mind, can you introduce us to Catherine Parr in a bit more detail, how her queenship came to be and so on? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So you're absolutely right. There is there tends to be a real break. Um, Jane Seymour tends to get fairly ignored as well in the first half. Um, but Catherine Parr is absolutely fascinating and really does deserve to be right up there with Anne Boleyn and Catherine of Aragon in terms of her importance. She is an English gentlewoman. She's born in 1512, so she's quite a bit younger than Henry. And um, she's raised around the court. So her mother is a high-ranking courtier. So she will have been familiar with most of the sort of the big names of the Tudor court. She has two arranged marriages um, in her youth. One is quite short-lived. The other lasts longer to Lord Latimer. Um, but by the start of 1543, she's living in London. She's newly widowed. She's just in her early 30s. She's very attractive and all accounts imply that she's very attractive. And actually the portraits would bear that up, I think. Mm. And she catches Henry's attention. Um, Henry VIII had been without a wife for about a year by that stage. Um, he's obviously beheaded his fifth wife, Catherine Howard. And he'd also passed a law or had parliament pass a law, which effectively means it's illegal for a non-virgin to marry the king. An obvious exception to that is um, a widow, because, of course, you can't expect a widow not to be a virgin. So he's somewhat narrowed the pool, of course. Um, you know, So he's very much looking, looking towards widows as a potential bride. And by early 1543, Catherine's clearly caught his eye. She's very close friends to, with Princess Mary, his daughter, which is probably how she comes to his attention. And she's incredibly reluctant. Um, we know from her later letters that she has already fallen in love with Thomas Seymour, who is the late Jane Seymour's brother, um, quite a dashing figure, um, although somewhat empty of matter, as according to <laughs> one account. Um, so she doesn't want to marry Henry. And in fact, um, a later source actually says she asked to be his mistress instead of his wife. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure just how truthful that is, but um, certainly we can see the reluctance. She later will say that God had withstood her will. Um, so God has sort of pressed her to marry the king. Um, they're married in J July 1543. And it's actually, um, it's one of Henry's biggest marriages, actually, um, apart from his quite grand marriage to Anne of Cleves. They have a sort of full family ceremony at Hampton Court. And she does throw herself into the queenship. So although she's a reluctant queen, she is a very, very active queen. Um, you know, she likes the trappings of royalty. Um, 
Catherine likes to dress well. She likes to look the part. She takes the royal children under her wing. Um, but she does seem to have felt that the driving force of her queenship was to convert Henry to Protestantism. Because mm. although, as we said earlier, Anne of Cleves is not a Protestant, Anne Boleyn is most likely not a Protestant, Catherine Parr definitely is. And she very much pushes this in her queenship. And that is for her the reason why she has become queen. So I think that means she's really, really fascinating. So what you said a moment ago about the fact that Henry VIII, by narrowing down the pool to widows, do you think in some respects then by this point, Henry had resigned himself to the fact that further children were unlikely and that ultimately he was looking for companionship? Yes and no. So, um, I mean, she's an odd choice for a man who is looking for more children because she's been married twice. And as far as we know, she hasn't given birth to any children. She does become pregnant after Henry by her fourth husband. So it's not impossible that actually she has born children earlier in her life and that we simply have no record of them, but that Henry was aware that she was fertile. That does seem plausible, I think, because otherwise she's a very strange choice. Mm. He clearly does hope for further children. Um, he passes the third act of succession early in their marriage, um, where he leaves the throne to his son Edward, and then to his legitimate children born to Catherine or any further wives, and then after them to his daughters Mary and Elizabeth, who he still is, insists is uh, still who he still insists are illegitimate. So he clearly is hopeful of children. There's also a poem, actually, that he wrote in one of his prayer books that's clearly addressed to Catherine that sort of talks about giving herself to Jove. And it's quite clearly he's expecting a sexual relationship. Um, So I think he's not necessarily just looking for companionship. And I think that is a bit of a Victorian myth and the idea that she's Henry's nursemaid. She's there to Mm. bathe his leg and to bandage it up. Um, And she's not really a sexual partner. I suspect that she is expected to be a sexual partner. Whether he can manage it um, is, <laughs> is a bit of a question, I think. And there have been rumours of Henry VIII's impotency since his marriage to Anne Boleyn. It comes up at George Boleyn's trial, in fact. Yes. They've laughed. As dis- they've discussed the fact that the king is impotent. Jane Seymour takes quite a long time to become pregnant, his third wife. He cannot manage to consummate the marriage to Anne of Cleves, although he does attempt it. And Catherine Howard, of course, never becomes pregnant. And, you know, she's young. Um, you know, you would potentially expect her to become pregnant. Mm. So whether he is able to fulfill the husband's role in the marriage bed, I think is it remains to be seen, really. But I think he is hopeful of further children, potentially. But mainly he's looking for an attractive wife. And I think he is very attracted to her. So Catherine has a couple of distinctions in English history. She was the first woman to publish her own book in in her own right, I believe. And she's also the most married queen in English history. So there's a sort of dichotomy, I suppose, with Catherine here, which is that on the one hand, she is fiercely intelligent, bold, has very much her own mind, wants to achieve her own things. And yet she's also constrained by the conventions of the time which require her to go through with several marriages. Do you think that that was therefore something that she would have struggled with? Or do you think even the notion of that internal struggle is too modern a phrase to to place on her? Do you understand what I'm sort of getting at? Mm, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think she is, she's a... She is absolutely a trailblazer with the book. So the first English woman to publish under her own name, which is is huge, you know, and really does set the scene and royal women after her 
noble women begin to sort of publish their own works. You know, we'll have a tract on motherhood by the Countess of Lincoln about sort of 50 or so years later, for example. Um, you know, women start to publish and she really is a trailblazer in that. But you're absolutely right. Her, her life is constrained. And, you know, she is born into a highly patriarchal society. And, you know, there's no doubt that Tudor England is patriarchal. Um, and it's slightly masked by the fact that the Tudors will accept women as rulers. Um, but really, monarch is the only official role open to a woman in the period. In general, you're expected to be a wife, you're expected to be a mother. And Catherine doesn't really have any other options early in her life. You know, she's married off quite young to Edward Burr, um, which is an arranged marriage. It's not a particularly good one, but at least places her. The Pars aren't a wealthy family. She then marries Lord Latimer, which is a much better marriage. But again, um, really born out of necessity. She has to marry. She has nowhere else to go. Her mother has died. She doesn't have a family home to return to. Henry VIII, she's effectively forced to marry him, I would say. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, she, you know, she's not held at knife point or anything like that. But, you know, it, saying no to the king is quite difficult. She, however, does enter into her fourth marriage freely. And I think... Um, Again, to some extent, she's following convention. It's quite usual for widows to take the opportunity to choose their own husbands, to to choose for love for the first time, because none of her previous marriages have been for love or even affection. They've been because she's needed to, to marry them. And she chooses really badly, of course. She marries Thomas Seymour, who um, turns into your sort of fairly archetypal controlling Tudor husband. Um, because of course a wife is a wife has no legal personhood in Tudor, Tudor England. So um, once you're married, everything you possess passes to your husband. Um, you're entirely subject to him. And Thomas Seymour and Catherine do to quite a great extent fall into that mould once they get married. And I think it's quite sad in many respects that she didn't stand out by herself after Henry VIII had died. This is the one point where she could actually have said, nope, not going to remarry. I'm going to oh. I'm going to do my own thing, if you like. And she doesn't. So she does fall back into convention. But equally, I think we can understand it because it's her its her one chance to be potentially truly happy, to do what she wants to do. It doesn't turn out very well, but I think it's understandable why, why she does take this fourth husband. And because there had been... Well, we know that, that the attraction had been there before her marriage to the king. I suppose she was finally free to go, I'm going to go through with this because it's what I want, you know, yeah. rather than being told who she had to marry. Yeah, um, completely free choice. She doesn't have to marry Thomas Seymour. In fact, it causes more issues, the fact that she has married him. Um, it very much causes a breach with the Lord Protector, for example, Edward VI Regent. Um, it would have been a smoother path for her not to have married Thomas Seymour. And it's very much her own free choice that she does. So with Catherine Parr, she's named, we believe, in honour of Catherine of Aragon. And like Catherine of Aragon, she is the only one of... Henry VIII's wives, who has a period of regency whilst the king is out waging war, he got, you know goes back over for what would ultimately be his sort of last fruitless attempt at sort of military glory. Can you tell us a bit about that time? You know, how did Catherine respond to it? You know, did she have a lot of success as regent? Yeah, I mean, it's notable that she is appointed regent. Um, partly, the other wives aren't regents because there's. Um, 
there's no reason for them to be so. So, you know, Henry remains with Anne Boleyn during their marriage. He doesn't go abroad. Same with Jane Seymour. Same with Anne Cleves. He probably wouldn't have appointed regent anyway. Um, yeah. Catherine Howard. Um, so he goes to France with Catherine Parr. So she is a natural choice. You would expect the Queen to be appointed as regent. And there's a lot of historical precedent for that. But she very much makes the most of it. She signs immediately as Catherine, you know, Catherine the Queen regent instead of Catherine the Queen. Um, she holds council meetings. She organises supplies for Henry's Boulogne campaign, which um, is quite significant because, of course, having an army out in the field is quite, is quite difficult to manage. So you do need an effective administrator back home. She also keeps the royal children with her, which I think is partly to shore up her own position um, because you know, it, it's extra authority, if you like, for her role. But she clearly does enjoy her regency. I mean, she enjoys it so much that we know that she is disgruntled when she is not named regent in Henry's last will when he dies in January 1547. And in fact, she does attempt to take the regency for Edward VI. I was going through a box of documents um, a few months ago, actually, in the National Archives, and I came upon one of her, um, actually a couple of her documents that were signed Catherine, the Queen Regent, and date to 1547. So she began signing as regent after Henry VIII died. Um, She is thwarted in that. She's not able to secure the regency, but she does try so she's clearly quite keen to um, take on the regency again. I think she enjoyed it. I think she likes the power. She's an ambitious woman and she's a very effective administrator. So I suppose in some respects then, not to, to take away from her success, but ultimately this wasn't necessarily about the king showing greater trust in her than he would have done in, say, Anne Boleyn or Jane Seymour. It was just circumstantial that it happened to be during her tenure as Henry VIII's queen that he left the country again. Yeah, I mean, I would love to say it's because he has so much trust in Catherine, but I think, no, I think any of his queens, apart from perhaps Anne of Cleves, would have, could have mm. expected to become regent had he needed to leave the country without them. Anne Boleyn almost certainly would have been appointed regent. Um, and Jane Seymour, I think, there is talk of Jane being left as, you know, in effective charge during the Pilgrimage of Grace if Henry mm. needs to go with the army north. The council are going to remain with her, for example. So I think it's more about being a queen. But she does certainly make the most out of the role and I think increases her profile and increases to some extent builds on relationships with some members of the council. And she does have some quite strong relationships with members of Henry's council, not all of them, of course. Um, But I think she is a highly political queen, but uh, the circumstances of the appointment, I think, would have fallen to any of the queens. And you touched on a moment ago about the fact that after Henry VIII's death, Obviously, she was deprived of a formal role. As you know, she was not made regent. That post went to Protector Somerset, the, the, the older of the uncles to Edward VI. You clearly think that she was annoyed by this and, and, and disappointed by it. Do you also think that, to my knowledge, there was quite a contentious relationship between her and Edward's wife, Anne Stanhope? Do you think she played a role in that, in, in ensuring that Catherine did not regain her position as the most senior woman in the land. How much do you think she played a role in that? Um, I think quite a large role. I mean, I think Catherine was very disenfranchised by Henry's death. And I think she wasn't necessarily aware it was coming. I mean, he'd had an earlier will, which seems to have named her as regent. And so I think she was genuinely expecting that she would be regent for the king and also governor of the king. So she was quite shocked to discover that she wasn't. Um, As you say, she has an incredibly fractious relationship with Anne Stanhope. Um, There's one source, again, it's somewhat dubious, but it it talks about um, Anne saying that Henry X had only married Catherine in his dotage 
and that she's therefore not a proper queen. We do know that the two very much jostle for precedence. So they sort of fight to get through the doorway first, for example, and to get the best seat in the chapel. Um, there's a letter actually that Catherine wrote where to Thomas Seymour saying that if she'd been standing closer to the protector, she would have bitten him. Um, so clearly there's no love lost there. And really they do form two rival couples. There's the Duke and Duchess of Somerset, so Edward Seymour and Anne Stanhope. And then there's Catherine Parr and Thomas Seymour, and to some extent a sort of rival court, if you like, um, who would very much like to take the regency and take the governorship of the king. Um, so I think for Catherine, her disenfranchisement is primarily Henry VIII's making. Um, he has removed her from power. She's not Edward's mother and she can't assert herself once Henry has effectively removed her from the regency. Um, she and Henry do have a somewhat troubled relationship later in their marriage and um, that doesn't seem to have recovered by the time of his death, which I think is why she is removed from the Regency. But Edward Seymour and his wife very much capitalise on this and they are intent on pushing Catherine into the background. In fact, um, the protector even confiscates Catherine's jewels. He actually even takes her wedding ring and won't give it back to her. The jewels that were taken, were they included the jewels that were the official, that belonged to the Queen or were they her personal jewels as well? A mixture, a mixture. So okay. some are the official jewels and some are her own, including the wedding ring, um, which um, yes. by all accounts would belong to her. Um, so she, she um, certainly some of the Queen's jewels potentially should have been returned, although there isn't a Queen in England at that stage. And really, it would Ooh. only be when Edward marries. Um, so you would expect that Catherine would still use the jewels. Um, there's a lot of precedent for Queen Dowagers remaining effectively the Queen until the King remarries. Joan of Navarre, for example, the widow of Henry IV, very much fulfills the role of Queen um, during Henry V's reign, at least until he has her imprisoned for witchcraft. But for Catherine Parr not being the mother of the King and the fact that Henry has had a pretty complicated marital career doesn't really help her claims for high status. She's not, you know, she's She's not a foreign-born princess um, with status of her own whom Henry's married. She's relatively low-born. And actually, it's not that difficult to sort of push her aside to some extent. She is the queen. Um, she is the queen dowager. But actually, um, the wife of the protector is able to make a claim, I think, for being the leading lady of the court to some extent. Yeah. I mean, the situation would have been so vastly different if Edward were her biological son. You know, that would have been, her position would have been unassailable, really, wouldn't it? But because Absolutely. he wasn't, he wasn't her biological son, he was her stepson, it did, it did change things massively. Absolutely. If if she were Jane Seymour, who was still alive, Jane Seymour would absolutely have taken the regency. I can't see how she wouldn't. Mm. Uh, it's the fact that Edward can call Catherine his dearest mother all they want, but everybody knows that she isn't his mother and yeah. that it's a it's a relationship through marriage. And that's not necessarily strong enough, not without Henry VIII's backing. Um, and he doesn't give it to Catherine in his last will. One of the few things that people will disagree on with regard to Catherine Parr is her behaviour around the time of Princess Elizabeth's time under her roof and the the behaviour with Thomas Seymour. So, you know, we're, we're led to believe that Thomas Seymour behaved very inappropriately. And there are sort of conflicting reports that Catherine Parr was sort of both horrified at her husband's behaviour and concerned for her, her stepdaughter. Others claim that she was party to it. And that, you know, there's that story of Thomas 
cutting Elizabeth's gown into a hundred pieces and Catherine Parr pinning her down. It's obviously impossible to say with absolute certainty, but as someone who's written a book about Catherine and spent a lot of time in her company from a distance of half a millennia, where do you sit on this? Do you have a a, a sort of sense? Yeah. So I think Catherine is a complex figure and I think um, we can see that very clearly with the Seymour scandal. Um, the attention of Thomas Seymour towards her young stepdaughter. Um, Catherine does, to some extent, seem to know what's going on. Um, she actually joins in some of the tickling in the bed herself. Um, she also holds Elizabeth in the gardens at Hanworth when Thomas Seymour slashes Elizabeth's dress to pieces. Yeah. Um, so she definitely knows what's going on. There's also a somewhat confused story that um, Kate Ashley, um, Elizabeth's governess, tells that Kate, Catherine came to her one day and said that Thomas Seymour had told her that he'd seen Elizabeth embracing a man through the gallery window. Um, and Kate Ashley concludes that Catherine Parr has made this up as a means of ensuring that she keeps a better watch on Elizabeth. Um, so Catherine does seem to have been aware of it. So I think... It's pretty clear that Catherine doesn't protect Elizabeth as she probably should do. Um, your reputation is all important if you're a, a Tudor girl. Um, and Elizabeth, although she's only 13 and 14 while this is all going on, she would absolutely be blamed for it were it to, become, to come out. Um, you know, it will destroy her reputation. It's very clear Catherine doesn't protect her. And the reason she doesn't protect her is because it goes on. We know it goes on. Mm. Um, and there's plenty of evidence that it's happening. However, I think, conversely, I think if you look into the marriage of Catherine and Thomas, you, you do come up with more sympathy towards Catherine. Um, it's not a particularly healthy marriage, I would say. He is called an oppressor in the household by some of the servants. Um, there's one story the servants later tell that Catherine is alone in a room one day when a, group, a male groom comes in to tend to the fire. And when he's in the room, the door closes on them. And when Thomas Seymour discovers that she's been in a room with a man by herself, he flies into a rage. Looking at her account, he is clearly taking her money, her income into his own hands. And he actually gives orders that the money comes to him. And the position of a wife is actually there's not a lot she can do. Um, she is very much subject to Thomas. He is now the head of the household. She's the queen, but she's also his wife. So short of sending Elizabeth away permanently, which would cause a scandal, there's not a great deal she can do, save for trying to insert herself into it or inserting Kate Ashley into it. So that Lisa is a chaperone so that nothing worse can go on. So I think she probably does do the best that she can to protect Elizabeth. I think with hindsight, she possibly should have sent Elizabeth to Princess Mary or to um, you know, another female friend of theirs. In fact, Elizabeth is eventually sent to the Denny family. Um, oh. But I think with hindsight, she probably should have sent Elizabeth away. But she seems to have quite a close relationship with Elizabeth. She's a good stepmother. She's previously had a very close relationship with her stepdaughter, Margaret Neville, from her second marriage. And I suspect that there is real affection between Catherine and Elizabeth, mother-daughter relationship, and that Catherine doesn't want to send her away. She probably should have done. So she certainly fails to protect Elizabeth. But I think she does try to protect her. And I think that's that's something that we can see quite clearly in the relationship. It's so difficult, isn't it? She was a product of her time. Her husband was a product of the time. He, whether we like it or not, he became the head of the household. She had to try and respond in a way that pleased him, but also to the best of her ability, protected her stepdaughter. And that's going to be a very difficult thing to, to marry up. 
Yeah, I think so. Um, she's also, I mean, I, I should say with Catherine, she's not above using her stepchildren if she needs to for a political benefit. She certainly does make use of Edward um, when she's trying to get her marriage to Thomas Seymour published and accepted. Um, mm. They don't, she and Thomas don't necessarily play fair with Edward, if you like. They sort of persuade right. him it's his idea for the marriage when actually they're already married, for example. Um, but I think there is genuine affection between her and Elizabeth, but it's not a healthy environment for Elizabeth to be in and she shouldn't have been there. She should have been removed from the household. A thought occurred to me a while ago that of all of Henry VIII's wives, I feel like if they'd had a chance to know each other, that Anne Boleyn and Catherine Parr would have been firm friends. And I base that around, now, you know, we were saying earlier that Anne Boleyn did not die a Protestant, but she was definitely a champion of religious reform. We know Catherine was very much on the, the, the Protestant side of things. They both had relatively humble beginnings. They both served at court. We also know from the records that they both loved fashion. I think I believe Catherine Parr was particularly fond of shoes. Do you do you think that they I just feel like they of any of the six wives, they would have been close had they got to know each other? Yeah, I, I, I sort of like to think so. I think we'd have to take Catherine of Aragon out of the equation. She's probably Catherine Parr's godmother and yes. she's Catherine Parr's mother's best friend. So I think that might be it's slightly awkward for the young Catherine Parr. Um, but I think um, in general, I think the two are quite similar. And I'm always really cautious about, and as we have been saying, Anne Boleyn's a Protestant. She's not a Protestant, but mm. she is she is quite reformist in her faith. She's clearly a Christian humanist, and not all Christian humanists end up on the Protestant end of the spectrum, but quite a few do. And I, I would suspect Anne Boleyn would fall on the Protestant side by if she had lived into the 1540s and the 1550s. Um, I think she would get on with Catherine Parr. Um, they have similar interests. They're both very, very interested in religion and in religious reform, albeit Anne isn't at the Protestant, you know, moving towards Protestantism quite as fast as Catherine. Um, I think yeah, absolutely. They like fashion. They're all, both also very political. You know, I mean, Anne Boleyn would have loved to have been named as regent. I think we can sort of safely <laughs> say that she would have really enjoyed that. Um, but Catherine Parr is also highly ambitious. And I think, you know, we can see the ambition in both women. So they have women, they have quite similar backgrounds to some extent. Anne Boleyn's family is perhaps a little bit richer, but Catherine Parr's family are very well connected. So I think they probably would have got on quite well. Um, and they are quite similar, actually. And I think you're right. And, um, you know, the similarities don't necessarily always get picked out. Um, mm. But there are, there are a lot of similarities between, between the two women. Unlike Anne Boleyn, Catherine Parr has several confirmed portraits. One actually came up not long ago at auction. I think it made something like three point two million pounds actually it, it was a huge <laughs> sum of money and to my knowledge she's also the only one of Henry VIII's wives for whom we have a proper full-length portrait in existence I know that there was one of Anne Boleyn at one time that sadly is now lost what can we learn from her portraiture that tells us about her role as queen and it's what, when you were doing your research with the book did you go and see these portraits in the flesh yeah, I mean, the portraits are amazing. Um, there are a number of Catherine. As you say, the most recent one was sold recently. I mean, I wish I could have bid for it. Um, it was a bit <laughs> out of the price portrait, range, actually. It? Yeah, I mean, if they wanted to take sort of a fairly smaller sum of money, I would, it would have been mine. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's... It's fascinating how painted she is because um, we're in an era where, it, where it's still relatively rare to sit for a portrait. You know, um, you wouldn't expect. And I mean, there's no, there are no confirmed images of Catherine Howard at all, for example. Mm. And as you say, no contemporary ones of Anne Boleyn, no, at least portraits. So I think 
firstly from the portraits, the fact there are so many suggests that Catherine has quite a strong interest in portraiture and also in sort of sending her image out there as queen. I think that's really the key to the portraits is that she is depicting herself as a queen and she's making it very, very clear to people that she is a queen. Because although she is married to Henry VIII, she's the sixth wife. So I think a lot of people are thinking, well, how long will this last? Um, <laughs> and actually, you know, there is a sense that his later wives aren't particularly legitimate queens to some extent. He doesn't bother to crown them. Um, they're certainly expendable. He can move on to a new queen quite quickly if he wants to do. Really, I mean, it's only foreign princesses that he has a problem removing because um, he can't execute them. So I think there is a sense that she needs to portray herself as a legitimate queen. And we can see that with Jane Seymour as well, very much makes strong efforts to portray herself as a queen. Um, so mm. Catherine Parr dresses the part. We know that she has incredibly rich clothes, rich jewels, which we can see in the portraits, of course. And the portraits themselves really display her image as queen. She looks as a queen should look in the portrait. She looks absolutely like a queen. I think that's the point of them. You also get portrait exchange um, amongst royal women across the continent. For example, Mary of Hungary, I think, of the of the regions of the Netherlands is busily trying to order a portrait of Anne of Cleves when Henry VIII marries her because, you know, she needs one to add to her collection to display. So having her portrait ready to send out is also important because it shows her legitimacy on the European stage as well. But I think it is all about demonstrating that she is Henry's legitimate wife in spite of the circumstances of their marriage. And I think what's interesting about Catherine's portraiture as well is that she's also, if you look at the particularly the four English queens of Henry VIII and in that most famous portrait of Catherine Parr, what she's wearing is so different I'm talking of the one with the big puffed sort of claret red dress and the the bonnet, the the the, the bonnet that's very unlike the gable or the French hood. It's a man's also, hat, really. Yeah, it, it's it's very different, and and sort of that iconography. If you see that outfit even without the face, you would say Catherine Parr, which is quite interesting because it does show you firstly how quickly fashions were changing, but also that she chose to be painted in a way that was very different as well from the other portraits of her and from the other portraits of the women of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, particularly that portrait, it, there's no, you know, it's obviously Catherine. I mean, it's it, there are some of her other portraits do kind of change identifications. Um, there's one at Hever, which was said to be Catherine Parr, but is now definitely Catherine of Aragon. And did oh, I know the one. Like yeah. Catherine of Aragon. How yeah, How anyone I, ever thought that was Catherine Parr is beyond me. It's so clearly <laughs> Catherine of Aragon. I mean, obviously so. It's even got the chin. Um, there, but there's also the National Portrait Gallery, full-length Catherine Parr that was supposed to be Lady Jane Grey for a long time. Mm. So even, even with Catherine, we do have... Um, it's uncertain sometimes. But, yeah, the one with the puff sleeves and the man's hat is very daring. I mean, she's wearing quite... Um, not just the hat, but the dress itself is quite mannish in style. Um, yeah, it's you know, almost it, it doublety, isn't it? It is, yeah. So yeah. it's quite a daring thing to wear. She is a bit of a fashionista, Catherine. Um, you know, she likes her clothes. And, again, she's such a fascinating woman because she's so devoutly religious. In her Lamentation of a Sinner, she talks about how, you know, she would give up everything she owns to convert one man to the truth faith but i'm thinking no you wouldn't catherine you love your clothes <laughs> yeah you definitely wouldn't a couple of what ifs and what ifs are always a, a difficult one but had catherine lived into the reign of mary the first obviously her religious views would have been very challenging for mary the first and we know that protestants in england at the time 
a lot of the noble Protestants fled into, you know, they fled overseas. Do you think Catherine would have found herself in a position where she would have had to have left England? Do you think there's any chance that Mary would have authorised her own stepmother's execution? Or, or is it just too difficult to say? That's really interesting. Yeah, um, they were quite close. Um, Mary was quite offended by Catherine's remarriage so soon after Henry VIII's death, but they do become, you know, they're reconciled. It's a tricky one. Catherine was going to struggle in Mary's reign, undoubtedly, because she's such an open and devout Protestant. You know, she's close to Thomas Cranmer. She's close to many of the leading Protestants who do get burned by Mary. I think I mean, certainly her closest friend, the Duchess of Suffolk, heads abroad for a bit. Um, you know, a lot of English exiles go to the Netherlands. I think it would be quite difficult for um, the Queen to leave the country, particularly, of course, the Netherlands is ruled um, by the Habsburgs, who Mary marries into. Um, so I don't necessarily see a route for her to leave England. And um, where she, where would she go? Mm. Um, so I suspect... Mary probably wouldn't have had her executed. Um, you know, they she is her father's widow. They've been close. But I think it would, to some extent, depend on Catherine's behaviour and whether mm. she is content to, you know, she probably isn't going to go to mass. She's not going to conform. But whether she's content to be quiet or not, really. But certainly I think she could have found herself in quite a considerable difficulties. Yeah, almost unlike Elizabeth, who, as Mary's, blood relation and the the recognized heir apparent is a very different position to Catherine who I think you know I get the sense that like you she would have sort of lived quietly away from court and just waited for better times for yeah. people of her of her faith and she's also famously the the third wife of Henry the Eighth who very nearly herself was executed her actions and her sort of religious conviction very nearly saw her arrested, the warrant for her arrest managed to find its way to her hands. Had that not happened, and again, it's a big what if, do you think she would have followed in the same path as Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard? Or is it, again, too difficult to say? So it's a really odd plot. And there are a lot of kind of strange elements. So of course, you know, Catherine is debating with Henry VIII while he's ill. She's apparently trying to convert him to Protestantism, which she might well have been doing, I think. Um, The arrest warrant is drawn up, but then Henry confesses everything to his doctor, to Dr. Wendy. Um, The warrant is then dropped outside Catherine's chamber door, which is quite odd in itself. When she finds it, she becomes hysterical and Henry hears her cries and goes, oh, she must be ill. Um, Dr. Wendy, will you go and see what's the matter? Um, So Dr. Wendy, of course, goes to Catherine and says, okay, this is what I know. You need to go to the king and make up with him quite quickly. Um, so she then goes to Henry and he, um, you know, he says, oh, Kate, there's a there's a point. And again, I'm massively paraphrasing here. Um, mm. It all comes from John Fox. But there's a point of doctrinal religious law that I'm just not sure about. Can you tell me? And she goes, oh, no, I couldn't possibly tell you, um, you know, interpret religion for you. I'm just a woman. And he goes, but you have done before. And she goes, oh, no, if I've debated with you, it's only so I can learn from you. And yeah. so they make friends. Um, but I think I suspect that Henry isn't trying to get rid of her because if he was trying to get rid of her, why would he tell the doctor? Why is the arrest warrant um, dropped? Why does he allow her into his presence? Because he certainly doesn't allow Catherine Howard into his presence or Anne Boleyn after he's decided to rid himself of them. So I think it's more about bringing her back in line. I don't think he realised he'd married a a heretic as he would see it um, back in 1543. And I think it's sort of... He was not that pleased when he discovers that he has, but he doesn't necessarily want to get rid of her. He just wants her to stop 
openly talking about Protestantism and toe the line. So I think she's never in danger as long as she does go and make up with Henry. However, if she hadn't, and if she had continued insisting on debating with him, then I think we might have a different story. So in that sense, she is in danger, but she's given a chance to save herself, which is not something that his other wives are given. He's testing her almost, I think. Yeah, he? absolutely. And um, it's a he's threatening her into submission to some extent. And I mean, it's quite a threat, really, the threat of a heresy arrest. Absolutely. You've written many books exclusively, I believe, about women from from our past. What in what way does Catherine Parr stand out from the rest, in your opinion? She's really fascinating. I mean, she's quite low born, which is interesting to to rise so high. I think it's the fact that she's a writer that's really interesting. Um, you know, we have her voice. I mean, Lamentation of a Sinner is quite heavy going. If you ever, you know, it's not it's not like bedtime reading, but it's a fascinating <laughs> insight into her mind and her religious conviction because religion is so central to her life. So I think it's Catherine the writer that deserves to be better remembered. It's Catherine the religious reformer. Um, Catherine the mother as well, although she doesn't get to raise her own child, she dies a few days after her child's birth. She's absolutely Mm. a formative influence on Elizabeth I. And I think, again, that makes her stand out. She is of complicated character, but um, she's a very likeable one and a very human one. And I think that's really important to remember. And... I mean, she's uh, onto the sort of the next part of the the conversation. She's also now the subject of an upcoming film. So Catherine Parr as a character is hopefully going to be more widely sort of uh, her story is going to go to the, to the wider masses than than we typically see. Uh, and I'm talking about the film Firebrand, which is is coming out. There's no confirmed release date, I believe, yet. But hope I suspect it's one of those films they're going to try and get out in time for Oscar season. And you were involved in in the film as a historical consultant. Can you firstly tell us about how you became involved in the production? Yeah, so um, I was actually contacted through my agent um, by, and we were all, everyone was quite vague. It was there's a TV production company that want you to do some private lectures on Catherine Parr. It was all in lockdown, so um, for yeah, weeks course, at a yeah. time, um, I'd be doing a weekly lecture on some aspect of Catherine Parr for some writers and a director, and it sort of gradually became clear that it was actually going to be quite a big feature film. After that, I was sort of engaged as a consultant, so I was going through the scripts. I was sort of, you know, um, you kind of. It's interesting because it's, of course, based on um, Elizabeth Fremantle's wonderful novel, Queen's Gambit. So, yes. you know, it's it's not all historically, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily follow the, fully the historical record because, of course, it's a novel. It's a fictionalised account. But there are, you know, you do go through the script and go, well, this didn't happen. Are you sure you want to put this in? But that, you also go down to quite a minute net level. So you say, well, you can't have a pencil. That wasn't invented until. And then do a little <laughs> note on the pencil, for example. So I did some work on on the scripts. And also um, I was lucky enough to to be able to sort of to chat with Alicia, who plays Catherine Parr, for example. Wow. Um, and it also sort of helped a bit with some of the costume um, sort of ideas and things like that. So I was involved so quite a long way through up until really the point of filming. So it was fascinating to be involved with. Um, and really, it does get you thinking, actually, when you're sort of going through a script. Um, there's a lot of things on seasonal vegetables as well and whether whether that could have happened at that point in the year. Um, but really right. fascinating to be involved with. And I think it's going to be a fabulous film. I mean, it sounds like an absolute dream come true for a historian to to be able to suddenly be in the room you know looking at this sort of looking at the 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 script looking at the the costuming and going ah, 
you know, that's not quite right you know being able yeah. to I think that's that I'm that just sounds so so thrilling and with the film there's not actually been a trailer released yet but there have been a couple of clips that have made their way onto YouTube um, which I've watched obsessively because I, I can't wait for the film I'm so excited about it Firstly, and I often go on about costumes, but it's because I really think they matter. The costumes look incredible. I mean, they look absolutely stunning. And I'm always a bit of a, I'm a bit of a costume snob, I must admit. I, I because because we have so such rich records of of costumes and and we have the records from all of the portraits. I think it's one of the easiest things to get right. And by extension, one of the easiest things to get wrong. But this production looks like it's absolutely nailed the costumes, which is is so refreshing. So how much of a role did you play with the costume design? Was it, did you sort of get shown what, what they were going to be wearing and you sort of told them that's not right, that is right? What what sort of happened there? Yeah, and drew their attention to sort of portraits they should look at and look closely at. Fabric colours as well, for example. Mm. Um, you know, English women had a reputation for liking the gaudy fabrics. Um, so, you know, you get many more sort of muted colours um, in the Habsburg Empire, for example, than you do in England. In fact, in the Netherlands, um, cloth merchants saved the really the brightest colours to export over to England because they knew they would sell there, for example. So things like colours, things like fabrics. But uh, as you say, portraits, the portraiture is so rich from the period, particularly Catherine Parr. You really get a sense. But I know um, the costumes look fabulous and I'm really looking forward to seeing them on the big screen. You know, um, the French hoods have chin straps, which is fabulous to see. Yes, I've seen in the stills that that they have they have a very clear chin strap, and that they aren't those just big visors stuck on top of heads that so often productions get really wrong. It's it's very rare that you see. I mean, even in Wolf Hall, which by and large had pretty good costumes, the French hoods in Wolf Hall were just abysmal. It was sort of like a little <laughs> strap, wasn't it? It wasn't even a headband. It was so it was really refreshing to see that they've clearly paid a lot of attention. And as much as we don't have a trailer yet, there, you know, as I mentioned, there's been these couple of clips online and I get the sense that the film feels very deliberately claustrophobic. It feels incredibly tense, even just from these couple of clips. You get the sense that it's portraying the court of Henry VIII as just a massive pressure cooker. From your involvement and from your knowledge of Henry VIII's court, do you think that that would have been the case? And from what you've seen, do you think that's true with what they've done with the film? Yes. So, I mean, if you've read the novel, you'll know that it's very much a, a sort of tight thriller and it's a bit of a nightmarish scenario. And I think um, certainly my re work with the film, I think, really does suggest that that's going to be the case with it. And I think it, it, the last years of Henry's reign are a very dark time. Um, it's a time it's, it's quite Stalinist in many respects. And, you know, just one wrong word can that can be the end of you. And I think there is this sense in the 1540s that it's quite a dark time. The king is in decline. The king is quite dangerous. Um, he's probably quite severely depressed. He's certainly in a pain a great amount of the time. And I think the Henry of the 1540s is an incredibly dangerous man to be around. And I think I'm hopeful that the film will really portray that. I'm pretty sure that it will from my work mm. with it. I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating and again the novel is such a such a thriller it's such an interesting book and a really quite a dark take on these last years of Henry VIII. I remember when the film was announced and they were describing it as a, a thriller horror almost and I thought how are they going to spin that and then it dawned on me what what the context of that actually meant was that this was going to be a film showing the fact that yeah Henry VIII's caught by this stage and probably throughout a lot of his reign was quite a scary place to exist in. 
Yeah, sure. no, absolutely. And I think I'm pretty sure it will bring that out and it's going to be interesting and it, quite a different portrayal, I think. And yeah, fascinating film. And I recommend that everyone goes to see it. I'm very much looking forward to seeing it, hopefully later this week. Yes, I'm very jealous because, uh, as I said, there's no confirmed release date yet. So I'm, I'm dying to see it. It's got some very big names in, in the film. You know, you mentioned Alicia Vikander, the Oscar winner, Alicia Vikander, who's playing Catherine Parr. You've got Jude Law as Henry VIII. You've got Erin Doherty, who the audience will know as Princess Anne from The Crown, who's playing Anne Askew. Did you spend any time with the lead actors? You mentioned you did a chat with Alicia. Did you spend much time with anyone else? Yeah, just Alicia, actually. Um, And she was very keen to sort of try and see inside Catherine's head, which I thought was great, actually, and to kind Mm. of understand her motivations um, and her worldview as well, which I think is so important. So she was an absolute pleasure to work with. I very much got the impression that she was thrilled to be able to bring Catherine to the big screen. I think she'll very much do her justice. With that in mind, you know, we've mentioned Anne Boleyn a couple of times. She tends to massively dominate when it comes to film and television. You know, if you look at the Tudors, for example, which I thought was abysmal, but a lot of people love, (laughs) you know, uh, I suppose one of my controversial Tudor opinions is I don't like the Tudors and I don't like Natalie Dormer as Anne Boleyn either. I adore Anne Boleyn. She's my favourite figure from history and she does, but she does tend to dominate film and television. I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe this is the very first film about a wife of Henry VIII that isn't Anne Boleyn, which is so refreshing. Um, so, you know, would you agree that by just by definition, that's going to make for a really interesting story? I think so. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe next we'll have Jane Seymour, the movie. Um, <laughs> but yes, no, I, I think it will. And it, it very much, I mean, Anne Boleyn, of course, isn't even in it, um, which is no. quite refreshing. I mean, I love Anne Boleyn, but it's quite refreshing to see a story told that doesn't revolve around her to some extent, because it gives airtime to these other women. and Totally. And, Catherine Parr, Anne Askew, they're just so fascinating and it's its going to be great, I think. Yeah. I think one of the other things about the casting choices is that they've really nailed what, I don't know, I, when I think of Anne Askew, Aaron Doherty is, a, Aaron Doherty's face, I could almost picture that's what Anne Askew did look like. There's something, do you know what I mean? It's hard to, there's something yeah. about the casting choices they made that feels, I had a look at the, um, the actresses that are playing Princess Mary and Princess Elizabeth as well. And they both look so much like how you imagine. Yeah, Elizabeth is just, it's crazy how much she looks like the young Elizabeth. It's just amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's so exciting. It must have been like a, a, a real thrill to be involved. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely thrilled. And obviously I played just a small part, but it's just honestly, I'm sort of in my head, it's kind of my film too, you know? Yeah. Can you tell us? as pleasure. Can you tell us what we can expect as an audience? You know, the the, uh, reviews have been broadly positive. A lot of people are really highlighting Jude Law's work. Um, What can we expect from the film itself? What I would say is you can expect a lot of Catherine, a lot of focus on Catherine, which I think is really refreshing. Um, It's her movie. And it's not necessarily always the Catherine of, you know, of, of history. Some of the, it won't find its way into biographies. It's not exactly what happened, but it kind of, it gives you an idea of what Catherine perhaps might have been capable of, but it's just all about Catherine. And I think that's fabulous. Jude Law is, I've heard, fabulous as Henry VIII, um, mm. but it's very much going to be Catherine's show, I think. Good. That's, that's what I like to hear. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for coming onto the podcast for a chat with me about this endlessly fascinating woman who I, I'm just, I'm one of the reasons why I'm so thrilled with Firebrand is that it is shining a light on 
one of the wives of Henry VIII, who is less explored, but no less fascinating. Absolutely. I'm absolutely thrilled that um, she is getting the attention that she very much deserves. And I really was thrilled to be invited on to talk to you today about Catherine, oh. because she's such an important historical figure. Can you tell people what you've got coming up next? I actually saw you very briefly in the Philippa Langley documentary a couple of weeks ago as well with the princes in the tower. Yes, yes, I was in that. I um, went over to Mechelen um, in Belgium to talk about um, the wonderful Margaret of Burgundy, Margaret of York, actually, who's another sort of quite maligned historical female figure. Um, mm. That was an interesting experience. I obviously wasn't really commenting on the main argument of the programme. Um, yes. But other than that, you know, I sort of crop up on a few TV shows, you know, I've sort of here and there, I write a regular article in Tudor Places magazine as well, sort of a shout out there. But yeah, I tend to be around. Great. And where can we find you? So I'm over on Twitter um, and also Instagram, which is E Norton History. So do come over and say hello, um, particularly Instagram, actually, because I'm building that up. I only joined at the start of the year. So do come and say hello to me on that. Brilliant. Well, thank you again so much for coming onto the podcast. It was a real thrill to have you say yes and and talk to us about Catherine Parr. This has been uh, really, really interesting. And I know people are going to be really thrilled to hear what you've had to say. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. And so that brings me to the end of this week's episode of the Tudor Chess podcast. A massive thank you again to Dr. Elizabeth Norton for joining as a guest this week. I am thrilled to say that I'm also welcoming another guest onto the podcast next week. James Taff will join me for what is, I hope, a fairly topical episode for It's All About Christmas. Although, of course, I mean Christmas for the Tudors. For James is joining me hot off the launch of his brand new book, Christmas with the Tudors. Thank you again for listening and speak soon.